You're listening to a message from Micaiah Ermler, lead pastor of Southridge Church in San Jose, California. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Southridge Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. Let's just declare that this morning, that God is great. He's great over every burden. He's great over every trial. He's great over every situation. Our God is is great. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are great. You're the name above all names. You are the Lord above all lords. And so, Father, and it's into your presence we come. Your word says, let us therefore come boldly into your presence. And so, Father, we come before you. We come confident because the price that Jesus paid, the Payment has been covered by the precious blood of the Lamb, and it's by that blood we come to you. And Father, we're grateful and thankful for all that you are allowing to happen in our life, even though we don't understand it. We know that you are good, and so we declare your goodness over whatever we see as bad. We thank you that we can gather together. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone here together said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here, and thank you for standing. You may be seated. What a wonderful time of worship. Man, I just needed that. What a blessing to hear from the worship team this morning. What a joy it is to see each and every one of you. My name is Micaiah Ermel. I'm the pastor here at Southridge, and we're in a series entitled Revelation. And what we've been looking at is seven letters to seven churches, and these are quite literally seven letters that were sent out, and uh, they're letters that were written by Jesus through John the Apostle to seven churches that would be in Asia Minor in the Bible, but modern-day Turkey. And he wrote letters. And each week, we've been looking at a different letter. And these are letters that, that, that were written to a specific church at a specific time. But you will find that in these letters, there is truth that you and I can apply to our lives and to today's church. And so if you have a copy of God's word, would you go to the book of Revelation? And we're in Revelation chapter number three, and we're looking at the fifth church. There's only two churches left, and we're looking at the fifth church. Now, as we turn to Revelation chapter number three, I have a sound that I hate more than any other sound. And uh, you may have a sound, and you may be thinking, I know what it is. It's nails scratching across a chalkboard. No, that's not the sound that I hate more than any other sound, uh, and it's not uh, the sound of, you say, well, maybe it's the sound of Jane asking you to take out the trash. No, that's not the sound either, and, and Jane is in Florida helping with her sister who just had a baby, but I saw somebody put Jane's face right here in the chair where she would sit. That's really cool, so if you want to say hi to Jane, her, her face is right here on a picture, and Megan's is next to it, so thank you whoever did that. Uh, they, I guess they were cheap, couldn't do a, a cutout, but uh, you know, uh, maybe that would have been too distracting for me, but they got a picture, so that's really cool. But it's this sound, and I'm going to play it for you in just a second, but it's a sound I hate more than any other sound, and maybe you can relate. Let's try and play this sound. Yeah. Any 
Anybody else, you hate that sound? Anybody else just testify for morning? All right, I'm glad we got some honest people in church this morning that you could just testify to that. That sound, you just can't stand it. Now, some of you are like, I love that sound. I love getting up early. And those of us that don't like this sound, we now don't like you either, okay? So the two go together. We don't like that sound, and we don't like people who get up early in the morning. And I know the people that love the alarm clock and getting up early in the morning, you're kind of like, man, I can't chase my dreams if I'm asleep. I got to be awake. You got all these motivational things and everything, and you, you eat, you're organic, and you drink green stuff, and you're all healthy, and you're perfect, and we just don't like you. And uh, so, uh, uh, but we're glad that you're here. But the alarm, that waking up in the morning. Now, I want to know who in here, you're a snoozer. You hit the snooze button. Let's be honest. This is good group therapy. All right, there we go. I love my snooze button, okay? And my phone knows that I love the snooze. So I, if I were to open up my phone, you would see like seven different alarms, all right? And it's like I got the alarm that's alarming me to the fact that there's going to be an alarm. And then I've got multiple alarms, just one after another. And uh, for whatever reason, I like that. For, I don't know why my phone does this. It doesn't give me a five minutes to go back to sleep. It gives me eight minutes, and it's like 45 seconds. I don't know why, but it's eight minutes, and I love my extra eight minutes, and uh, this morning, I hit it twice, so I got an extra 16 minutes, so it was like, it was a little bit too early, so I hit that button twice, and it's great, it's awesome, but the thing about falling asleep is pretty common. As a matter of fact, I think oftentimes when you ask people about church, the number one thing that they think about church is falling asleep. That it's boring, that, oh, man, it's, it just, it's not, not a place they want to be. It's just kind of a snooze fest. And uh, I remember falling asleep one time, and uh, when I fell asleep, uh, I was having a great dream. It was awesome until I was rudely awakened by the car in front of me in their bumper. You know, I was like, man, I can't believe it. I was sleeping so well. I hit a car. I fell asleep at the wheel, guys. Some of you, it's still too early. I could tell, you know. And, uh, and, and, and I hit the person. That person hit the person in front of me. I worked all night at a hotel. And so it just uh, a sleep depriva- uh, deprivation. And so fall asleep, hit the person. And, you know, you, get, you hand insurance and everything. And I just went back to bed in my wrecked car at that point, waited for the tow truck, you know. And uh, so uh, a year or two later, I'm at Costco getting my $1.50 hot dog, which with everything else increasing, I think that's the last thing I'm just waiting, that that hot dog is no longer $1.50 with a drink, you know. But uh, so I'm in line, and I'm getting it. And she was like, you hit me. The lady serving me my hot dog. And I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't hit you. And she was smiling. She was like, yeah, you hit me but I got $7,000 because you hit me. I was thinking, what? This lady, she was like, yeah. I was in the car that was in front of the guy that you hit. You see, you hit a Jeep. The Jeep was perfectly fine, and he bumped me, and we all blamed it on you and called your insurance. And I was like, that's why my premium is so expensive. I didn't even know. And she was like, yeah, I was fine. I just told your insurance. Yeah, my neck kind of feels a little bit sore. And they just wrote me a $7,000 check. I was like, I should get this hot dog for free. That's, That's what I should be getting. Now, Megan, she's not here. But Megan is famous for sleepwalking. Uh, we have it had almost like, like just weird experiences with Megan sleepwalking. So Megan will sleepwalk all over the house. She'll have a conversation with you. Megan will wake up, and she will put an outfit on her pajamas, and you'll just catch her getting dressed. And you could talk to her and say, Megan, what are you doing? I'm getting ready for school. Okay, it's 2 a.m. You're getting ready for school. She's putting on an outfit. Sometimes she'll be making her bed. Uh, sometimes I've found her standing on top of a toilet. Sometimes she's just walking around. Sometimes she'll go out and ask you a question. She'll do all kinds of just, she sleepwalks. 
She got it from me. I used to sleepwalk. And so there's something that can be very dangerous about sleepwalking, right? Uh, you, can, you can hurt yourself. You can lock yourself outside. There's all kinds of things that can happen when you are asleep. Well, in Revelation chapter number three, you are going to meet the sleeping church, the church that is asleep. And you will see how dangerous it is as a child of God when we fall asleep. Revelation chapter number three, would you notice beginning in verse number one, the Bible says this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, and that you are not alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore... You will not watch. I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come unto you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from this book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." My question here is, what went wrong with this church? The word watchful is the same word as wake up. He's saying to this church, wake up. There's one thing when you go visit a church, and you can walk in, and I've toured Israel, and there's churches all over Israel, and they ask you to pay an admission fee to go into the church because it stopped being a church hundreds of years ago. Why? Because something happened. Spiritually, a church fell asleep. I've talked to even local churches here. I've said, hey, can I rent your building? Can I buy your property? And you, you'll talk to you and say, how many people do you have left? They're, and they don't even know. They said, because of COVID, you know, prior to COVID, we had eight, maybe 10. We don't even know now. And, and, and you'll talk to them and say, hey, I, I'll buy your church. I'll buy the property. And then they're like, no, we, we're fine. You're thinking, what do you mean you're fine? There's eight people and you've got this big property, this big building. It's just sitting here. And I've talked to the other people. You've gone into churches where you could hear that once the Spirit was there, where once there was a mighty move of God, where once people would go there and they would receive uh, preaching that was uh, relevant, preaching that was uh, life-giving, and now you go there and it's just dead sermons and old homilies, where you see that the Spirit is not there, nothing is happening, nothing is going on, where the world around them is just moving and they see this church. You see, here in this scripture, unlike all the other churches we've studied, Jesus does not say, I know you're being persecuted. He doesn't say that to this church. Jesus doesn't say to this church that, oh, hey, you guys are doing a really good job. He doesn't say that. This church was invisible to the city of Sardis. And the city of Sardis was a great city. It was a powerful city. This city would be similar to our city of Sacramento. You say, why? Because the city of Sacramento experienced a massive gold rush. And the city of Sardis also had a huge gold rush. So there was a lot of wealth in the city. And because of the wealth, they also were very powerful. They were powerfully political, just like Sacramento. There's a lot of powerful political people in Sacramento. And yet you can go to Sacramento, and it's the most dead city. You don't say, I can't wait to go to Sacramento. You ever gone downtown Sacramento? It's all dead. It's all boarded up. And you're just like... There's nothing here. It's all dead. And the city of Sardis, they had ceased to be bothered by this church that at one time was a great church. At one time was a powerful church. 
But God is using the illustration of wake up because it was so relevant to the city of Sardis. The city of Sardis was built on a thousand foot cliff. It was elevated and out of the reach of an enemy. It was an impenetrable fortress. But yet it was conquered twice by the Greeks and also by the Persians. You say, how was it conquered? Did they just bring brute force? No. The men on the watchtower fell asleep as the enemy snuck in, opened the gates, and let the armies in. It happened twice in their history. How many times have you and I, spiritually speaking, fallen asleep, not realizing that the enemy is sneaking in while you and I are asleep? This is why Jesus said, could you not watch but one hour? Could you not watch? Could you not stay awake is the word? Could you not stay awake spiritually? Or are you falling asleep spiritually at the wheel and you are wrecking your life? That's what he's saying at the church of Sardis. He's saying, you guys have a name in verse number one but you don't realize you're dead. You said, at one time, this church had a great reputation. They were known, but now Jesus tells them, hey, you think you're something special. You are living off of yesterday's victories, and yesterday's victories do not cut it for today, and yesterday's battles are gonna creep back up, and you have to be ready. But notice, I see that this church, there was no alarm that could wake them. There was no alarm. Here, Jesus, he sends this letter to them, and we see he tells them, you think you're alive, but you're dead. Notice this if you're taking notes. They are not alarmed by the lack of affirmation. He said, what do you mean? All the other churches, and you'll see it, the next two, the church at uh, uh, Philip, uh, 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 Philadelphia and the church at Laodicea, they get a commendation. They, they get some affirmations from God where he says, here's what you're doing well. All the other previous churches, they had something. Even though they had an issue to work on, they always had something that Jesus could recommend. But notice what he says in verse number one. He says this, I know your works. And it's almost like you're waiting for him to give a list. And he just moves on and says, yeah, you're dead. There's no affirmation. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He just says, you think you're doing well? You're not. You think everything's okay? It's not. I think there's nothing more dangerous than a sleeping Christian. In Romans 13, it says, the day is far spent, the night is at hand. Let us awake, therefore, unto righteousness. Why would the Apostle Paul have to tell us to wake up spiritually and shake us up? You see, it's very easy for Christians to be lulled to sleep in comfortable complacency. And it's time that the church of Jesus Christ awake unto righteousness. It's time that the church not be the sleeping church of Sardis, but that we hear the alarm clock and we stop hitting the snooze button. You know, you and I fall asleep because of two reasons. One, we're either too tired, or two, we're too comfortable. That's why we fall asleep. You're either too tired or you're too comfortable. And the danger for you and I as Christians is that you can be busy serving God, serving God, doing everything, ministering, ministering, and be so exhausted you just collapse. That's one thing. Now, I will say this. More Christians rust out before they burn out. I know we talk about burnout. Oh, you got to watch out burnout. Most of the times when I see somebody, burnout's not their problem. It's actually the former. They're so comfortable. And that's what we've done in church today. We've tried to make it so comfortable. So comfortable, you don't have to do anything. That you could just show up, you know, and if you give a couple coins in the offering, that would be great, you know. And if you help out and deliver some backpacks every once in a while, that would be great. But yet Jesus has called us to be disciples. And to be a disciple means we have discipline. 
But if there's one thing the church could use a little bit more of, that's discipline. Discipline to say, hey, the alarm is sounding and we're not alarmed by the alarm. That we say, no, no, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. So when the Spirit is speaking to this church, may the Spirit speak to you and to me this morning and say, are we asleep? Because like my car accident, I am very fortunate I didn't end somebody's life in a car accident. How many times have you heard of somebody falling asleep behind the wheel and they accidentally commit vehicular manslaughter? You see, as Christians, the devil is waiting for you to fall asleep. He's hoping you fall asleep. So you and I need to be sober, be vigilant, because the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he's looking for you and I when we are weak and when we're asleep. He wants easy prey. He's not going to go after the person that is on fire for God and reading his devotions and prayer and seeking God diligently. No, no. He's looking for easy prey. So if you are what I call nominal or on the margins or on the fringe or you're just kind of casual with Christianity, you will become a casualty of Christianity. You will be casualty where you will find that you won't make it. So there was no affirmation to this church and they didn't care. There's no affirmation. There was nothing that Jesus could look at their life and say, well, you got this going for you. There's nothing. And I appreciated that about Jesus. There was no participation trophy. There was no gold star for just showing up. There was no, none of that. And yet we live in a culture that says, hey, I've been to church today. I should get a pat on the back. Come on, I made it here. Yes, we're glad that you're here. But if this was just check it off and I'll see you in another couple weeks, then I'm telling you are spiritually asleep and say, God, open my heart and convict my soul that I wake up because what am I missing? What is the enemy doing? What is he creeping into my life? What bulwarks and beachhead is he establishing because I am asleep? So I spiritually need to wake up and be on guard because the enemy is looking to destroy you. And when I say destroy, I and my family are walking through devastation this week that is on a different level where it's wrecking lives and homes and churches because one person decided I will fall asleep spiritually and it's not going to affect anybody. Understand, no man is an island. Everything you do affects either your spouse, your children, your work place, your ministry, what you do in secret, it's just like Nathan the prophet told to David, what you did secretly, God will reveal openly and it'll be in front of everybody. So you and I, if we think we can dabble and play around with little pet sins, understand those pet sins grow up and they will destroy us. They will corrupt us. And that's what happened to this church. And Jesus is telling them, you actually are dead. Now I'm confused by that for a second. Wait a minute. If you're dead, how can you wake up? Like, let's, let's just, you know, he's saying in verse number one, you're actually dead, so there's no affirmation. But then in verse number two, be watchful, which means to wake up. I, Jesus, if they're dead, how can they wake up? And then I had to go to Luke chapter number nine. You say, why? What's in Luke chapter number nine? It's the story of a man by the name of Jairus. His daughter had died or was about to die, and he goes to find Jesus, and he gets Jesus, and he says, Jesus, my daughter is sick near unto death. Come to my house and heal my daughter. And on the way, there's a woman that has an issue of blood that touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And immediately Jesus says, who touched me? Because virtue or power has gone out from, from me. And the woman said, it was I who touched you. And he said to her, daughter, thy sins be forgiven. And, and, and at that moment, she was healed. And at that moment, a servant ran up to Jairus and said, trouble not the master for your daughter has already passed. And at that moment, Jairus, you can imagine as his daughter has passed, is saying, Jesus, you don't need to go. And Jesus said, no, 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 take me straightway. 
to the house. And immediately they come into the house and everybody is saying, Jesus, why are you coming now? She's already dead. She's already gone. And what did Jesus say? She's not dead. She only is asleep. Understand this is a powerful, powerful lesson. What you and I might think is dead, Jesus says it's sleeping. I can wake it up. Only the spirit of God can wake things that we think are dead. And what Jesus is saying, hey, yes, you may be dead, but I am Jesus. I am God, which speaks to you. And I speak life, and I speak resurrection, and I speak revival. So there was always an opportunity for dead things to come back to life. That's what our Christian faith is all about. So yes, the devil, anything that has to do with the devil, and sin brings forth death. We know that. John 10, that, that, G, that, the, that we know the works of the enemy, that he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants death. But Jesus says there's always hope. There's always a chance for life. So if you right now say, I don't know. I don't know where I'm at. Understand, Jesus can bring the reviving that you need. He can bring that health that we need. And that's what we trust in. But they didn't want the affirmation. You know, the Apostle Paul, if any of you have studied the five love languages, I figured out what the Apostle Paul's love language is. You know what the five love language is? Famous book. It's great. Maybe you went through a premarital counseling or if you've gone through a small group, it's a great book. Five love languages. I only know a few of them. Words of affirmation, uh, physical touch, uh, gifts, and there's two more. I don't know what the other two are, all right? Acts of service. Where's the fifth? Quality time, you could tell which two I don't care about, you know. So, I mean, sorry to my wife. She doesn't get those. She only gets the other two. You know, that, that physical touch one with Jane, I was like, I think that one is your love language, right? And uh, so, so when it comes to love languages, I figured out what Paul's love language is. You say, how? Because in 2 Timothy, he tells us what his love language is. He says, I'm waiting to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Everything that Paul did was to hear the voice of the master say, well done. He wanted the words of affirmation. He said, that's what I live for. That's why I would get on a boat, and even if it would sunk, I would keep on going. That's why even if a snake or a viper bites me, I'll shake it off, and I'll keep preaching. That's why you can beat me with rods, and I'll still keep preaching. That's why you can stone me, and I'll still get up, and I'll go back into the city and reach a person by the name of Timothy. He said, it's because I want to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You and I, that needs to be our desire. That one day we stand before the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who sent his son Jesus to die on a cruel cross, who bled and and gave his precious life for you and I. And we stand humbled and we take the crown off of our head and we place it at at his feet and we kneel before him in reverence. And at that moment, the only thing we want to hear, we don't want a gift, we don't want jewels, we don't care about a mansion. We just want to hear the words and we're waiting to hear the words of our father as he says, well done, well done. That's what we live for. And this church had lost sight of that. This church wanted to hear from the neighbors. Ah, we like you. You guys don't try to proselyte us. You don't try to rub that Bible in our faces. I like it when you show up to a party. You don't make me feel guilty about my sin. You don't just stand off and say, hey, I'm here. I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I want to, be, I want to have a friendship. And it's like, ah, I don't want to invite you to my party. You just make me feel uncomfortable. You see... This church had gotten to a place where the city didn't mind them. Why persecute them? They're okay people. And you say, well, that's because they just gave away enough backpacks and Christmas trees. No, mark my words. The moment the devil has stopped attacking you, it's because you and him are actually on the same direction. And that's where you and I should wake up and say, wait a minute. If I didn't meet the devil head on this morning, then maybe I'm headed in the wrong direction. 
the direction of the devil. And you say, Pastor, that's a little bit tough. Don't you think that just for ministry leaders? My friend, Satan wants to, just like Jesus told Peter, to sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy every one of you. You don't need to be a pastor. You could just be a software engineer. You could just be a bank teller. You can just, and excuse me, not even just be. You may be. I don't want to even put you down. It's not a put down. Sometimes we think Satan is only after people that are spiritually leading something. Oh, no, my friend. He will use anybody. He'll find his Judas. He will find a Judas. He will look for anybody. And so you and I need to be alarmed by the fact that there's a lack of affirmation. We need to hear from God. Words of affirmation. Understand this. When's the last time the Holy Spirit has spoke to you and convicted your heart? Where you feel that heavy conviction of the Holy Spirit, where he is speaking to you. You say, Pastor, but I don't hear him audibly. You know how you can hear God is when you open up this book. And you say, God, would you speak to me? I read Psalms 116, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I pray that prayer before I read the scripture. I need the Holy Spirit to open me and open my heart and open my mind to those things that are found in the word. And you and I need to say, God, speak to me. Secondly, they were not alarmed that they were not alive. That didn't faze them. It did not faze them. Dr. Vance Havner said, every work of God starts with a man, turns into a movement, then becomes a machine, and then ends up being a dead monument. He said, that is the lifespan of most ministries, sadly. That is the lifespan of most Christians. And we need to say, God, I don't want to just be a dead monument. They were dead spiritually. How do you know something's dead? What will happen is a doctor or maybe even uh, uh, somebody from an ambulance, they'll come in and they will say, we pronounce this person. There's a pronouncement of death. And they'll say, D-O-A, dead on arrival. And so here's a pronouncement from God who's the great physician. So he knows when some, something's dead. And this church is not phased by it. They're not phased that Jesus says, you're dead. Are we phased by it? Are we phased by the fact that something could be dead in our life? Is there something in our life that we are not getting victory over a besetting sin? Is there something in our life where we are not gaining victory? Are we still hung up on unforgiveness, resentment, or bitterness towards something? Are we still habitually falling into the same old patterns that aren't good for us? Are we missing the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life, the leading of his life? We need to be alive spiritually. But they were a church that was unresponsive. You see, the cause of death is found in verse number three. Would you notice, it says in verse number three, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. You see, they were unresponsive because they were unrepentant. You see, repentance follows our responsiveness. You see, when you see something in your life that isn't right, we got to deal with it. But so many times, we just let things go in our life. We could just walk by it, and we've gotten so used to it, it's become normalized. I worked at a camp in Flagstaff, Arizona, and there was probably about 12 to 15 guys in a guy's bunkhouse, all right? And it was just a bunch of guys. We, we worked in the kitchens. We did maintenance. We did uh, janitorial work. We cooked food. I don't know why they would let us cook food. We washed dishes. We worked with the horses. We just did everything, just high school guys. And there was a bunch of us in this uh, cabin, and it was nasty. It, nobody cared about cleaning, and nobody checked on us to clean. I mean, we're all between the ages of 15 to 18, just a bunch of dudes in a cabin. And it was like, who cares? We, this is how bad it got. We didn't know a skunk had came in and sprayed the cabin. And nobody knew. 
how bad has it got to be where a skunk comes in, where Pepe Le Pew can waltz on in, spray his little skunk odor all around, and you're like bracing for it, and then you're like, no, not bad, you know? How desensitized have we become? How desensitized has the church, have Christians become? May God once again alarm us by the things that we've allowed into our life that are desensitizing us. Are we used to violence? And if we're used to so much violence, then it's no wonder that we see violence on the street and it doesn't scare us. It doesn't stop us. Why are we seeing all these violent acts and nobody's stepping in to stop it? Because we've desensitized ourselves to it, that we just don't see it. Why is it that it's so easy to fall into immorality? Because we've desensitized ourselves enough so that we're no longer convicted by it. We're no longer convicted by a look turned into so much more than just a look. The look turned into lust, and lust turned into actually lying with that person. And so we, we, we just never think it's going to get there, but it gets there. Why? Because we are unrepentant. I got to give something to the Catholic Church for a second. I got I to actually say they got something right. You say, what's that? They got this thing called confession. You ever heard of it? Oh, a few of you good Christians have. The rest of you are just like, confession? What's, what's confession? I haven't done that in a long time. You see, what happens is you would go to a Catholic priest, and you would walk into a little booth, and you would shut the door, and you would start confessing. And then the Catholic priest would say, you need to say how many Hail Marys, our fathers, you need to do all this. The only reason I know about this is because, yes, no, I'm just kidding. My wife grew up in a Catholic school in the Philippines. But you know, that constant confession is very healthy for a Christian. That constant repenting, that you don't get this long laundry list of all the sins that just build up in your life. This week, I called up Jane, and I had to confess two specific sins that were weighing on my heart. And I said, honey, here's two specific sins I need to confess to you. And she had no idea. They weren't deep, dark, secret, nasty sins. But I just said, hey, look, I'm dealing with something. And, and the Holy Spirit has shined a light onto something creepy, crawly in my life. When I lifted up the rock in my life and I looked underneath there, there was something creeping and crawling. And I need to get it right, not just before God, but I need to tell you as my wife, as the person that you, God sees you and I as one, and if I'm committing the sin, that means I bring, I'm bringing you into this as well. And so I want to sever the devil's connection, and so I want to repent. And at that moment, she said, you've never done that. And I said, I know. And I said, it hurts, but it feels so good to confess that to you. You see, confession is so good for a Christian, but yet it's the one thing that we have not adopted. You see, the Catholics, at least they get that, hey, regular confession, regular confession. When's the last time you came clean before your God? We know that we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. We go to Jesus and confess. We know we don't need to go to a man. You don't need to come to me. Now, I will say this, confess your faults one with another that you may find healing, there is health in that, and maybe you need to go to a spouse. Maybe you need to go to somebody in your small group and say, hey, would you be my accountability partner on this? I travel alone, and it gets hard, or, hey, man, I'm struggling with this, and I want you to pray with me. Can I text you? Can I call you? Because I don't want Satan to get anything in my life, because I don't want to be an unrepentant person, which will lead to an unresponsive person. That the Holy Spirit can be speaking, I'm unresponsive. That it could be the best preacher, it could be your favorite preacher, and you're just unresponsive. 
I think sometimes we say, well, that message wasn't very good. No, no, I think it's we're unresponsive to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because anytime the word of God is open, his word is like a two-edged sword. It cuts, it divides, it pierces. It's going to do the work, not me. It's always the word. And yet when you walk into an environment like this, you say, yeah, I don't know. Wasn't very funny, not enough jokes, didn't outline exactly. You're missing the point of preaching that it should be the word of God, which the Bible says my word will not return void. It'll accomplish what I send it to do. And so the pattern is for you and I to have a heart that is good soil where that seed can be sowed in that soil and it could spring up and bring forth a harvest. And that harvest says, I need to repent. What is the word repent? It means turn around, change your direction, change your thinking and say, I need to look at this differently. But here was a church that refused to do that. They were unresponsive because they were unrepentant. And notice this. Thirdly, They were not alarmed by their own apathy. They were not alarmed by their apathy. You see, this is what can happen to a Christian church, is we're apathetic to the needs of the people around us. We're apathetic to those that are hurting, those that are broken. I'm I'm being shown something right now that's going on in North America. And I'm looking at something, and everybody's talking about mental health. How How many have heard somebody struggle with mental health? That's a big one nowadays, right, mental health? And I believe it is a crisis. I I do. But as I went to the Bible, God's word began to speak to me. Because I've been teaching our church not to give in to fear. But the word of God says this, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power. Isn't that amazing? And what is the world's everybody? I'm not here to beat up Simone Biles, but what did she step down for? Mental health. What are Christians struggling with? Mental health. What are we actually struggling with? We don't know the Bible, and we don't have the Spirit of God. And that's too simple. I'd rather have a pill. I'd rather talk to a therapist. I'd rather do with the, deal with the fruit than the root. And God is saying, deal with the root, not just the fruit. Because if you will deal with the root, you will get the right fruit. But yet Christians, we like to get it backwards. We like to just deal with the externals. And we just like to prune and guard and we show people how busy we are. And God's like, I am worried about your heart. I am worried about the root causes. And here's a church that was apathetic. They didn't care about the root. And may God work in our heart this morning to say, deal with that root. Don't let any root spring up inside of you, any root of bitterness, anything get into your life. But yet we have a church, and too often we're concerned by these things. You see, God was basically telling that this church had motions but no movement. They had a form but no force. They were desirable, but they weren't dangerous. My friend, a Christian is called to be dangerous to the devil. Do you understand that? But yet many Christians are impotent and have no power with God. I bring up the fact that mental health is coming because I believe it's actually a spiritual thing that they need deliverance from. I actually believe it's a form of demonic oppression. Not demonic, they're filled with demons, but it's demonic oppression. They're oppressing you and you need deliverance from that. And that's what we're seeing in the Western culture. If you've traveled to any third world country, Africa, East Asia, parts of South America, the occult, witchcraft, very normal. It's very normal to have a church service where you're casting out demons and you're praying over things. The Western church, we're kind of like, whoa, hey, calm down now. Let's all just sing how great is our God one more time. And let's just kind of just keep it three points in a poem. And I'm seeing Western culture 
overtaken with things that you see in these third world countries. And I started talking to these pastors. And they're saying, you Western church folks don't understand. It's all demonic. And you just think you can just deal with the fruit, and you don't understand that there's a root of all this. That it's demonic oppression that we are battling against. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers in spiritual places and high places. That's the battle. But yet Christians, we've somehow opened ourselves up to it, and we can't allow this thing just to be apathetic towards it. We can't just step back and say, all these people, man, they just need a little bit more medication. They just need this. Obviously, we've had 100 years of therapist 100 years why are we worse off not better we have all the medications why is it worse not better because that's not the problem see this church is apathetic and is our church apathetic to these growing needs that's just one issue we can go to all the other issues that are happening in our country why is materialism have such deep roots in america materialism is just deep i see it in even church leaders And I'm not saying you can't have nice clothes and have a nice car and have this, but I'm seeing there's church culture that says if you don't have it, then something's wrong with you. And I'm concerned by that. It's materialism. It's a love of the world. And I'm not against having nice things. I'm just saying don't let the nice things have you. There's a difference. And it's okay, but yet we can become a church that's like this church, very wealthy, great facilities, great youth group room, great uh, fellowship hall, great auditorium, great sound equipment. They had everything you would want in a church, great playground, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit and the power of God. Notice something real quick. It says in verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard. Isn't it interesting he didn't say remember what? You received and heard? You see, we look at the Bible and we don't actually catch these little words. What and how? This is powerful, church. How you received it. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God, according to John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. My friend, do you see it? It wasn't just what you got. It was how. How did we get it? We got it through the spirit. And he's saying, you've lost the spirit of God. Oh, my friend, that's a dangerous thing, that the church could lose the spirit. That the church could so grieve the spirit of God, the spirit of God says, I'm out. I've been to those churches where you walk in, you're thinking, you have all the externals, but something, something's missing, and it's the spirit of God. Church, we don't want to build on that six acres if we don't have the spirit. Let's not waste the $10 million it's going to take. Let's not even do it. Let's, 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 let's just sing Kumbaya and close it down. If we are not going to get on our knees and say, we need the Spirit, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God is not going to lead our church, if he's not going to lead your home, if he's not going to lead your life group, if he's not going to lead in your business, if he's not going to lead in your thoughts, if he's not going to lead in your actions, if he's not going to lead in your life, then shut it down. You're dead. We need the Spirit of God. When the heavens come down, we need God to come down. We need God to save us. The church is more impotent than it's ever been. Why? Because we don't have the Spirit. And we need to get back to not what we receive because the church has all the knowledge. There are more Christian books. There is more Christian audio. There is more podcasts. There is more Christian channels. There is more Christian celebrities. There is more Christian colleges. There is more Christian organizations than there has ever been at any time. But how is our world so broken and so gross and so decayed and so fractured when we've got all the knowledge? 
because knowledge puffs up. It's not enough. It's the spirit. You know, my friend, you and I understand this very well. You ever heard of a term there on life support? You ever heard that? What's happening? It's a machine pumping the lungs. It's a machine keeping the heart going. It's a machine. It's all a machine. It's all a machine. They're just hooked up to something. And then there's the difficult conversation that either the RN or the doctor or the orderly walks over to the family and says, they're on life support. What do you want to do? And then you go to the will, and the will says, do not resuscitate. It says, pull the plug. What was keeping that person alive? The spirit was gone. It was the machines. What is keeping the church alive today? I would say it's ministry programs. I would say we're just propping things up. Oh, look at this area. Look at this area. We're alive. We're alive. We're alive. No, no, that's a machine. Because where the spirit of God is, Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. You will know when God is there. There's a consuming fire because you don't escape the fire of God. And I'm not talking about the fire of God's wrath. I'm talking about a man or a woman set on fire with Holy Ghost power. You know that person when you see him. You step back because you know you're in the presence of God, not in the presence of a great man or woman. You know God is on that person. You know God is on that teenager. You know God is on that man. God is on that husband. God is on that wife. God is on that church. God is on that life group leader. God is on that ministry leader leader you step back and the devil says that person's dangerous let's put a bullseye on their back you see the church was never meant to just be a church that was desirable and that for the last 30 years church has got to be sexy it's got to be desirable we got to make sure everybody likes our programs likes our coffee and god's like where's that in my word people got to like you like you like you oh wait he said if they hated me We have churches preaching heresy. You know what heresy is? It's a bold-faced lie. You say, but pastor, shouldn't we be friendly? Absolutely. Of course we should be friendly. A man that has friends must show himself friendly. The church should be the most loving place. But we should also be a place that preaches the truth and not say, hey, it's all about the guest experience. We want you to have a great experience. You're a first-time guest. Man, I hope part of this you enjoy. I hope part of it helps, but at the same time, let's just be honest. The church is for believers, not lost people, okay? That may offend you. The church is for you, but it's not about you. There's a difference. We come here to say, God, this is not about me. It's for me. I need to receive teaching, instruction, because we need to be taught. We need to receive to do the work of the ministry, And then we need to multiply that. We need to reproduce that. That's what we're supposed to be. But yet we've been lulled into sleep that just says, hey, it's enough just to have a reputation. Their reputation didn't meet the reality. Social media has allowed you and I to hide like never before. It's allowed you and I to fake it like never before. My wife showed me a funny video the other day. A guy's leaning up on a Lamborghini and he's just leaning there just talking. And another person pulls out his phone, and he walks up to the guy leaning on his Lamborghini, and he's like, hey, you like my Lamborghini? And then he pushes the key button, and the guy gets up because he was trying to fake it like he owned a Lamborghini. You see people go to a model home and act like this is their model home, do a little cooking show in the kitchen real quick. 
you know what we do. We, we've got the filters and we got everything to cover it up and make it look nice. Oh, the marriage is garbage, but hey, baby, we're on a date night, so let's just get close just for a second to fake it like, you know, hey, you know, ride or die, everything's perfect. Looked at us, you know, hashtag goals. How many hashtag goals were we seeing on Kim and Kanye and now they're divorced? You're like, I don't want them goals. I don't want those goals. No. But yet the Christian life, we become a filtered faith. It's all filtered. It's not real. And at the church of Sardis, God's like, you have a name. And they're like, okay, and? And God's like, what are you expecting? And your works do condemn you. See, their reputation wasn't backed by reality. They had fooled themselves, but not God. You fool yourself, but you're not God. You think you're okay, but you are not okay. Adam Newman, the, co- the founder of WeWork, ever heard of him? Anybody? We got a lot of software people in here and engineers. And he started WeWork. He got, they were supposed to IPO in 2019. And he got their company, WeWork, at a $49 billion evaluation. This is huge. This is more money. The only problem was the company wasn't worth that. You say, why? What were they doing? See, WeWork is an office share business. They have one right off of Santana Row. All of it is nice offices. And he wanted the investors to think that this was the next big thing. So what he would do is he'd get a bunch of alcohol, and he would tell the people there, hey, go tell all your friends. There's just free beer. And so they would pile every floor filled with people. So the investors would show up and just see, look at all these people. Never looked at the books. Never looked at the books. And then finally, they're going to IPO, but you have to turn over all your books. And all of a sudden... Everything went south. They realized that he was fake. He's not worth any of this. He had wrote off the reputation of his wife, who was related to Gwyneth Paltrow and had networked with the right people, and it was all fake, and yet I see that in Christianity today. I see that we just kind of put on the mask. And I'm not talking about the one that to help us not take in these pathogens and things like this. I'm talking about that, that mask that, 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 that they're not going to require you to wear to go in Costco. I'm talking about the one that you just kind of fake. You see, they had a ritual, but no relationship with Jesus. And that's what I'm concerned by. This could be the church. Just have a ritual. This is our ritual. I just go to church. I've been going there forever. I just keep going. And I just, there's no relationship with Jesus. It's just my ritual. My friend, we need to repent. We need to come before God and say, hey, I don't want just a ritual. Can we all stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? Are you distant and disconnected from Jesus? Are you asleep and you're not even alarmed? The alarm's sounding. God's saying, wake up. And yet you and I are just still apathetic. We're okay if we don't receive an affirmation. We're okay that we live in apathy. My friend, I can't conjole you. I can't convince you. I can't uh, kick you in the spiritual behind to do it. The Holy Spirit's going to have to do it. I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm just asking the Holy Spirit get a hold of your heart and grab you. That the sweet form of conviction. The Bible says the goodness of God leads us to repentance that God's goodness will get a hold of your life and shake you and maybe he will wreck you and he will say, hey, here, these things need to change in your life. Maybe this morning, the stillness of this moment where you say, God, I'm gonna humble myself and maybe God and the 
throughout this message, just put a spotlight on a particular area in your life. And he said, hey, this has got to change, my friend, that this has got to be corrected. If that's you, would you, with heads bowed and eyes closed, slip up a hand so I can pray for you this week? Oh, amen. I see those hands. Oh, thank you for your honesty. God bless you. I see these hands. God bless you. Thank you. Let me put your hands down. Maybe you listened to this entire message and you said, hey, that ritual without relationship, what is, what is a relationship with God? See, the Holy Spirit will prompt you and say, hey, you're not a child of mine. Would you like to be? Would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, repent of your sins, and receive the forgiveness of your sins, your transgressions? Is that you? You don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior? Would you be so honest and slip up a hand with nobody looking? It's just God and you and me. Is there anybody like that wants to receive Jesus Christ today? Just right now, slip up your hand. Anybody like that today, we could pray with you. Well, after the service, you'd like to talk with me. I'd, be, I'd love to pray with you. Heavenly Father, you see these hearts. You see these hands. Spirit, if you don't work, then this whole thing was pointless. Just words. Just hot air. Just another hour out of our day. But Holy Spirit, if you will work, then we will see its lasting, rich, and real effects. So, Father... We ask you to send the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. God, some people in this room, they need comfort over a situation, while others may need deep conviction over a sin. And so, Father, while both are in this room, the Spirit can minister to both. And I'm asking that your Spirit be felt, your presence be real, that you would be near. Your word says you are near to those who are of a broken and a contrite spirit. You will in no wise cast out. So, Father, if there's a person here that is burdened and saddened and burdened down with the weight and guilt, I pray, Father, that you would be near to that person. Would you bless that person? I pray for those that are in bondage to something right now that you would give them the deliverance. May they understand that you have come, that your truth will set them free, and may they find that freedom in your truth. And so, Father, we seek you this morning. We love you. We pray that you would work in a powerful way. As the worship team comes, we're going to sing one final song. I'll be down at the front. If you want somebody to pray with, I'll be right down here as we sing this last invitation song. We hope you were encouraged by today's message from Pastor Micaiah. If it was a blessing to you, don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.